Well, good morning, church. want to uh, wish everyone a very happy Father's Day, and uh, praise God for, for uh, fathers. I've thought often of my father this morning and uh, all the things that he had taught me, and I uh, believe that I am who I am today because of the investment he made in my life, and I, I pray that God will help all of the fathers here at the Vine be men like that who invest in their children's lives, who can, when their children can one day stand up and say, man, my dad was a great dad. So let me encourage you to be a, a great father out there. Um, this morning, I want us to look at 1 John again, 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at the end of that passage and also look into chapter 3. And what I want us to do is, uh, is, is talk about um, two tests. We've been talking about tests for the f- last few weeks, and we see in the book of 1 John, there's, a, there's doctrinal tests, there's ethical tests, there's moral tests. This morning, we're going to see more of that moral test. We'll see two tests in particular, and John's going to use some illustrations here. We, we do that, don't we? We love to illustrate things. You and I, we love to absolutely try to paint a picture for people. And uh, one of the ways we do that is by using contrast, we might say something like, uh, man, this is black and this is white. So black and white obviously contrast to one another. We might say uh, that's the difference between night and day. Uh, and then sometimes we use things that just don't fit. Like, like if you look in this room, this carpet just doesn't fit. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, we, we're going to fix that pretty soon. But there's just those contrasts. There's things that don't look right. And so we use those as illustration. John has done that throughout the book of 1 John. He's talked about light and darkness, being children of light or children of darkness. He's talked about love and hate. He's talked about last week the Antichrist versus the Christ and those who, who uh, uh, profess Christ, those who deny Christ. And we see another contrast today, and that's righteousness and sin. There's a contrast between a life of righteousness and a life of sin. There's a contrast between children of God and children of the devil, is what we'll see today. And then the final contrast is the, the, the loving the brother versus hating the brother. And so John is, is making his way back around some of the themes that he's already been teaching us. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the, the book of 1 John. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. And so he keeps pounding this drum that Christ is our life. He is our life. He is what we're here for. He's what brings us together today. Jesus is life. And as we look at this passage, it'll be important for us to remember that John is not telling us how to become a Christian, but he is telling us that Christians show how a Christian is to show that he or she is a Christian. He's not telling us how to be right with God, how a person is called and declared righteous by God. He's telling us how we show that we are right with God. These are tests of, of, uh, of how, whether or not we're a Christian. So his concern is to show us how we live the Christian life, not how we enter into the family of God. And that's important because I think a lot of times people, I've, I've heard people talk about different pastors, you know, like, like we like to do that. And man, they always preach about this. They always preach about that. Man, this is a Christian living message today. So if you're a Christian here and you thought we're just going to tell you that Jesus died for you, we are going to tell you Jesus died for you. That's the gospel, amen? We're not ashamed to proclaim the gospel, but there's some good Christian living application for you this morning, just as always here at the Vine. So we'll see two tests, the test of righteousness and the test of love. Let's read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and we'll read all the way through chapter uh, 3, verse 18. This is God's word. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame as his, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him and keeps on sinning. No one abides in Him and keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to look at your word this morning. God, I pray that you would illuminate our minds to this truth, God. Truth that was spoken long ago. God, that we might be molded and transformed into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In verse 28, John addresses this congregation as little children again. He's showing pastoral care and love for this congregation, and he calls them little children, and he's in Encouraging them to abide in Christ, to stay in Christ, and to have Christ as their life. Um, in this world, if Christ is our life, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to be ashamed of now, and we certainly will have nothing to be ashamed of then. So we can have confidence now, and we will have confidence then, because we are trusting in Jesus Christ. And if Christ is our life, then we will pursue holiness. We will pursue righteousness look at verse 29 this is where john begins to emphasize this test of righteousness he says if you know that he that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of god now we know that christ is holy that he's righteous and it says here if we know he is righteous then the pursuit of holiness is the then therefore the mark of everyone who has been born of christ if we know he is righteous, then we know that the mark of everyone who follows him is a mark of righteousness. 
In other words, John is saying, if you really know Jesus, one thing you know about him is he is holy. He is perfect. In him there was no unclean thing found. In him there is no sin. In him there, there is only perfection. The only human example of perfection we've ever seen was in Jesus Christ. And John says, if you know him, if you know him as he is, holy and righteous, then you will know that he is holy. And, and, you, and if you have been born of him, you have been born also to this holiness. You have been born to this righteousness that resides in Christ. Now, I want you to get this. Our holiness, our righteousness, our pursuit of holiness and righteousness in this life is rooted in the doctrine of the holiness of God. It's rooted in who God is, not who we were, but who we will be one day because of Christ. It's rooted in who God is. That's why we read somewhere in 1 Peter. Peter can say, hey, be holy for God is holy. He's telling the people to be holy. And, uh, and Peter in that passage is, is actually only, only echoing what he heard long ago, right? Somewhere in a place like Leviticus chapter 11 where the Lord says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore. Be holy for I am holy. And so our holiness, our pursuit of holiness and righteousness is tied to the doctrine of God's holiness. He is other. He is set apart. He is unique. And there is nothing and no one like our God. And John here is telling us what Peter told his readers, what Moses told the Israelites. God is holy. And those who are God's, those who belong to God, are to be holy. That's the challenge. That's the test that John puts before us this morning, a test of righteousness. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that we have died and been raised with Christ in newness of life. Well, if the life, if his life was holy and we have been raised again to this newness of life, then what kind of newness have we been raised to? We've been raised to a life of holiness. The new life is a life not marked by sin, but a life marked by holiness, a life marked by righteousness, just like Jesus. Now, there is much more to this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of righteousness. There's, there's more that John will even say. He goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 3, and this is, uh, this, is, this is big, y'all. See what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This enormous privilege of being called a child of God. We have been adopted as children in the family of God. And he wants us to pause here and reflect on this idea that God has called us his children. And so, we, who were by nature children of wrath, have been invited in to the family of God. And he has chosen to make us joint heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a privilege to know that God, that's the kind of love he had for us. I, I, I want you to get that this morning, to understand that we as children, we inherit what Jesus inherits. We, we, are, we, are, we are no less a child of God than Jesus is, according to this passage. So we're joint heirs with Christ, we trust in that. And this is a privilege that he's called us to. He elaborates on this in verse 2. He says, if, if we understand the privilege of being adopted in the family of God, of being children of the living God, then we will also realize 
that it is one of the qualities of those children to bear a resemblance to their parents, right? And not just physically, but morally. I'm, I, this morning, I'm a Jones. I've been a Jones all my life. I look like a Jones. I smell like a Jones. I talk like a Jones. I act like a Jones. But more than that, I'm a Christian. I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I pray I look like a Christian, that I talk like a Christian, that I act like a Christian, that when people see me, they say, that's a Christian. Not just a Jones, amen? Jones won't get you nowhere in life. I know all you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, but that ain't going to help. That ain't going to help. Keep up with Jesus. Be like Jesus. You don't want to be like a Jones. Be like Jesus. Now, in verse 2, we know that we're not there yet. I mean, look at us. <laughs> we're not there yet. But one day, one day we'll get there. Amen? Oh, that day when freed from sinning. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Oh, that day. Listen, we, we live in a fallen world. We, we still have a sinful nature. At times, we still sin, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But one day, that'll be no more. Our holiness is not just to be revealed on that day, though. You know, a lot of times we think of it, hey, I know that I'm not perfect. So we use that as an excuse to sin or to keep into sin. Our holiness is not just to be revealed on that day. And so he says to those who are children of God that we are already bearing the resemblance of the Heavenly Father. And one day we'll bear that resemblance perfectly. In other words, though we are now children of God, we are not bearing the image of God perfectly. There is still weakness and sin and failing in us but one day when he comes again we'll be perfect and we'll be made fully like him and we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is now john says think of it for a minute because we are children of god we already have begun to to bear this resemblance of god of christ of our heavenly father so people should be able to look at us and say look at her she looks like a christian she looks like her father she looks like her heavenly father she reminds me of her heavenly father they, they ought to be able to look at us and say he acts like his heavenly father when i see him i see something of god who's revealed in the scriptures through this person because they are molded into the image of the living god so the question is is that what people say about us is that what they say about me god help us to resemble christ and so john builds on this point in verse three look at verse three and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure this idea of purifying yourself is that you are continually washing away those things that are not of god you are progressing in the christian life you are pursuing holiness and righteousness in other words your hope is that one day at the coming of christ you will be completely like him but even now you yearn to be like him you want to be like jesus there's a desire in you to be more like jesus so do you want to be like Jesus? I, I, I'm not asking, are you good at it yet? All right? I'm not asking, have you perfected this thing? I'm asking, is it a desire of yours? Is it something you long for to be like Jesus? Because when we come to faith in Christ, we, we, we understand that we will want to desire the things that he desires. We will want to love the things that he loves. We will want to avoid and abhor those things that he avoided and that he hated 
and you'll want to be like him now. It will be a desire of yours to be like him. Listen, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You've probably heard that before. We're, we're, we're worried about what we will be. Listen, right now, God's worried about what you are. He's concerned about you pursuing holiness, you growing in your faith. He didn't save you just to sit. He saved you to serve and to be holy and to serve him and to love him and to, to represent him well. So it's, 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 it's got to be a desire, right? At the same time, it's not only a desire, you ought to be good at it. <laughs> I, I know I just said you, you don't have to be good at it yet, but you ought to be. You ought to be getting better at it. You ought to be growing in, in, your, in your relationship with Christ. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is, you know, we're, we're not under the law the old testament law anymore we have a new law the law that's written on our heart right this is describing those people who are lawless it's like they have nothing written on their heart they have no conscience to follow and they they live a life of sinfulness and sinful rebellion against god and john is saying that pursuing a life of sin is evidence of a rejection of god's word and a rejection of jesus christ that should be on our hearts god's word on our hearts and when we live in a life of sin we practice lawlessness those are those are evidences that we really don't have a relationship with christ this is the exact opposite it's the contrast of pursuing holiness and righteousness when we pursue a life of of sin we show that we prefer to do things our way as opposed to god's way when we pursue uh, and he says that those who practice sin are, are practicing lawlessness. It's evidence of this rejection of God's word in Christ. Now, what I want us to do is, just for a minute, is look at look closely at verses 4, verses 6, verses 8, and verses 9. And I want us to think about these verses together, because there's a, a common misconception here. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has seen or known him verse 8 whoever makes a practice of sinning verse 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning this is troubled of many of people who were who were christians who had some sin in their life this is this is where people find themselves concerned about their soul listen i don't want to take that concern away from you there's there's some reason for this to make us uncomfortable. However, I do want you to understand these verses in their context. All three of these verses, the word sinning here is a present tense verb, which is the idea of one who continues in sin. It's a, it's a, it's a pattern. This is somebody who makes a practice of sin. This is someone that you look at and you know their life is marked by sin, their habitual sin. And it's not sins plural, but sin singular. It's it's this idea that we, we've been talking about Christ is my life. This person, you look at them and you say sin is their life. They even say sin is their life instead of Christ being their life. So verse 6 logically and necessarily flows out of verse 5 because there's no sin in Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's, it's the picture of conversion. When you understand that you're a sinner, that you have sin in your life that has wrecked your life, 
and you see the sinless Savior, and you turn from your sins and you trust in the sacrifice of the sinless Savior, in His atonement for your sins, how can you keep abiding in sin? That's the picture here that we see. And so this person, uh, John's theology here, it really is flawless. If the sinless Son of God appeared in history to take away sin, how is it possible to abide in Him and in sin at the same time? And the obvious answer is, it's impossible. You can't know Jesus and still have a life that is predominantly marked by sin. If someone comes to you and says, yeah, I know Jesus, but their life is a picture of hell and rebellion, they're not saved. Listen, I've heard, I've heard people talk about this all my life. As, as, as a pastor, had the privilege of, of ministering to people come, and, and they say, man, look, when I was, I was a kid, man, I, I walked down an aisle, and the pastor led me through a prayer. And, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that's all bad, but, but here's what I am saying. And, 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 and since then, man, I've just, I've just kind of lived my own life and done my own thing, and, and, uh, and I'm here to, to, to rededicate my life. And you, know, you don't need rededication. You need rebirth. You need to be born again. If your life has never been transformed by the sinless Savior, you don't have Jesus. You've got sin. And the Bible calls us to repentance. And so this morning, if you're on that fence and you're trying to say, I don't know what my life's marked by, I'm not trying to convince you one way or the other. I pray the Holy Spirit right now will speak to you and will open your heart to see the truths of the gospel. Because a life marked by sin is not life in Christ. It's not evidence of someone who is born of God. In fact, if one does continue in a pattern of sin, another logical and necessary conclusion that we see in this passage must be drawn. Everyone who keeps on sinning has not seen or known God in a personal relationship. This is meant to make us somewhat uncomfortable. There are many of you out there who are thinking, well, does that mean I have to be perfect? No, that that would contradict what John said back in chapter 1, that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, right? This is not about sinless perfection. This is about sinless pursuit. This is about a pursuit. This is about us striving for holiness and becoming more and more holy. Because of the new birth, we have a new nature. Because Christ has taken away our sins. We see it there in the text. He's taken away our sins. We have new liberty and a new freedom. Sin no longer dominates our lives. It no longer enslaves us and holds us back. Sin no longer is the character or conduct of our lives. Because I now abide in Christ, in the power of His person and work in the gospel, I may fall into sin, but I will not walk constantly in sin. Sin will not be my habit. Sin will not be my normal practice. I no longer love sin. As a matter of fact, I hate sin. I no longer delight in sin. I despise sin. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. It's not fun for a season anymore. It's momentary. In our union with Christ and our abiding in Christ, we have a definite and decisive break from sin. Listen, if you wonder if that moment was real in your life when you accepted Christ and you were born again in your own in your own way of thinking the question is 
Was there a definite and decisive break from sin? Was there a definite, decisive break for sin? Or you, do you live the same way you did before, you just got some fire insurance? There should be a definite break. Sin no longer rules your life. Christ does. Christ is now ruler. A life of living in sin and living in the Savior is an oxymoron. It's, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's actually absurd to think that you can be in Christ and in sin at the same time. Now, if it weren't enough to be called someone who hasn't seen God or known Him, let's look at verses 7 through 9. John tells us that you do, you act, you do who, you, you do what you are. You do what you are. Listen to how he explains it in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John is saying you do who you are. Your deeds reveal your heart. Your actions reveal your character. And this is truly the opposite of a, of a works-based righteousness. Our deeds do not justify us in the sense that we are saved or have a right standing before God because we do certain things or we check off a certain box. I had, a, I had a Catholic friend recently who asked me uh, uh, about, we were talking about salvation, and he said, man, you know, aren't we really just saying the same thing, just saying it two different ways? No, no, we're not. We're not even close. Our works don't justify us. There's nothing in the work that you do that justifies you. It testifies to who you are, but it doesn't give you a right standing before God. If you're saved, your life will certainly be marked by grace and peace and holiness and righteousness. And your life will certainly check off certain boxes in the Christian life. But those works don't get you to heaven. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. That's a good verse, amen? We're not saved by our works, we're saved for good works. Our deeds testify to this inward work that Christ has done in us. So John is not saying if you practice righteousness, God will accept you as righteous. He's not saying if you practice righteousness, you will be saved. Nor is he saying you must both believe and practice righteousness, and then you'll be saved. What he is saying is if God has done a work of grace in your heart, if you have truly believed on Christ alone for salvation, if he is, that he offered in the gospel, if faith alone if by faith alone you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then this is the way that you will live. You will live in holiness and righteousness. The evidence of God's grace working in your heart will be seen in your life. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. So it's not that God will accept us as righteous as long as we make ourselves out to be righteous, nor that God will accept us as righteous if we both believe and do the works like I just mentioned. But when we believe on Christ and are accepted by God, declared as righteous because of what Christ has done, then he ushers forth this life of righteousness in us. You look like a Christian. It's not just a name, amen? We resemble our Father who is in heaven. But the reverse of this is true. Look at verse 8. Remember? It would have been enough for him to just say we don't know him, we don't see him, but look what verse 8 tells us. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Is of the devil. A life which is bent towards sin, a life which is characterized by ungodliness and rejection of God's word, by refusing to seek out holiness, is a 
is a life which bears the marks of the devil. So John here says, you do who you are, but listen to what else he says. You do whose you are. You do whose you are. Not only do you do, you do what you are, but you, you do whose you are. Notice again what he says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Those who practice sin show that they belong to the devil. Those who practice righteousness show that they are born of God. The child of God bears the marks of who chi- whose child he is in his life. Now, it would be easy for us to read this passage and think that John is teaching, again, like we mentioned earlier, some sort of sinless perfection, or that you must be perfect in order to be a Christian, and John is teaching neither of those. He already addressed in 1 John 1, uh, people are taught Christians uh, could, be, could, could not be sinlessly perfect, and he's, contra- he's not contradicting that. He said no Christians can be sinlessly perfect. He also addressed the issue of sin in the Christian life. So the question is, does a sin in the Christian life mean that one is not really a Christian? No. 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Sin in the Christian life is not the issue that he is addressing here. He is addressing fundamentally, listen to this, the issue of a person who claims to be a Christian but the bent or habit of, or characteristic of his or her life is one which is in accordance with the devil. It's one that is marked by unrighteousness and ungodliness. That person is not living in accordance with the grace of God, the truth of God. Does a Christian sin? Yes. Do Christians sin more than once? Yes. Does that make them not Christians? No. But John is asking about the bent the habit, the characteristic of a life. And he's saying that our lives reveal who we are. He continues this thought in verse 10. John says that the children of God and the children of the devil are distinguishable distinguishable by the contrast of their habit or their behavior. And I want you to think back to verse 7, where he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. If someone says that you are a Christian, they're a Christian, but their, their life reflects sin and ungodliness on a regular basis, habitual sin. They are not a Christian. They are not born of God. So if you remember back in chapter 1, not only can other people deceive us, but we can actually deceive ourselves. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't just warn us, as those who name themselves as Christians, that we could deceive ourselves. We could be living a life of sin. Listen, if you're here this morning, you could be lying to yourself. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to talk you out of your salvation. But I want you to understand, don't trust in a moment. Don't trust in, 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 in a pastor who said something about you. Don't trust in a, a mother or father who said something about you. Trust in God's word. Compare your life to what God says a Christian ought to look like. And if you line up, that's a good thing. And Now, if... if I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that if, if one side of the ledger is just a little bit above the other. I'm talking about genuinely your life reflects righteousness. Your life reflects goodness. If you're still living in sin, if sin doesn't bother you, if you've gotten to the place where you can just keep doing the same old habits you've always done, beware. Beware. Heed the warning of the Scriptures. It's so easy for us to be outward thinking. Let's look at ourselves as well. Your life is more of a practice of sinning than a practice of righteousness, hear the gospel. You are in sin and you need a Savior. Confess your sins. 
trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and get the one get on the path of righteousness. Not perfection, one day perfection, but a pursuit of holiness and righteousness now. Now, he does say that we should be able to distinguish those who are children of God and children of the devil. And we may not always be correct because there will always be those who can fool us and pretend. But we are told by Jesus that you will know them by their fruits. And one of those fruits that is brought up in this verse is the fruit of love, particularly love for the brother. And so we see the test of righteousness. Now we move into the test of love. Verse 11 actually flows very nicely out of verse 10. And the child of God, having been born of God, does what is right, which includes loving his brother. Now, the contrast is the child of a devil of the devil who hates his brother, even murders him. There's a crystal clear contrast between children of God and children of the devil. They're either lovers or they're haters. And to make this plain, John goes all the way back to the beginning. He takes us to Genesis and to the story of Cain and Abel, the story where we see the very first murder in human history. Cain, his Uh, kills his brother Abel and his actions reveal who his true spiritual father is the devil listen to John 8 44 it says you are of your father the devil and you you will your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native tongue for he is a liar and the father of lies so Cain was a murderer he he hated his brother and he killed his brother the word, the word murder there is to, to, to slaughter or to butcher. It speaks of a, a violent and brutal killing. And what were Cain's motives? His heart was filled with jealousy and envy and resentment because Abel had brought this sacrifice that was acceptable to God and Cain brought a sacrifice, according to this text, that was evil, that was evil and was not acceptable. So Cain hated Abel over this and he murdered his own brother. And there are so many places we could go and speculate about what Cain was thinking. But the scripture teaches us that he had malice and hatred in his heart. And it led him to an action that was detestable. That's really what we just talked about. Who we are comes out in what we do. And Cain's anger and his hatred problem led him to a murder problem. Sin always escalates, doesn't it? Always takes us further than we wanted to go keeps us longer than we wanted to stay cost us more than we ever wanted to pay sin always escalates and to all of this john says in verse 13 don't be surprised or stop being surprised literally it's it's natural for the world to hate you it's natural for the world to hate you don't be surprised or caught off guard when the people of this world like cain hate you when they when they try to murder you However, we are not like Cain. We are born of God. We resemble godliness. And the opposite of hate is obviously love. So we resemble love. Don't be like Cain. Don't descend to the level of Cain. Resist the the primal urge to return evil for evil or hate for hate or murder for murder. The gospel has changed us. Amen? The gospel has changed us and, and love is at the heart of the gospel. And where the gospel is taken root, love will be the natural fruit of the gospel. And so the message John is giving us is don't be like Cain. Don't be a hater. And this is the part we must understand. If you ask people if they've murdered someone, the majority would say what? No, man, I'm not a murderer, right? If you ask someone if they've hated someone, 
A little different story, right? We can all recall times perhaps where we have strongly disliked if we want to tame it down a little bit or hated someone or absolutely detested someone. John here is, is only following the example of Jesus that, that comes out of, uh, out of Matthew 5 where Jesus says that uh, you've heard it said if you murder, but I say if you're angry. And so John here says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Those of us who have eternal life, we don't have murder. We got eternal life. The contrast there, life and death. And this is the echo of what Jesus said. It's not just the action, but the heart and the motives behind our action. So we are not to be like Cain. We're not to hate or murder. Who are, to be, who are we to be like? Jesus. Yeah, it's a good Sunday school answer. It's a good answer. We're to be like Jesus, right? So we see verse 16. What is Jesus like? This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is one of those verses that we should memorize. I mean, we all probably have memorized John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, this is 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for his brother. Some might think that, uh, wow, that was planned out, but chapters and verses came much later in the Bible. Uh, It was originally just written out word for word, and so this probably has no, uh, there was no reason for it going together. However, we see in John 3.16 that God gave his son for us, and in John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, It says that we should give our lives for the brothers. We see this example of Christ, this demonstration of love, and then this explanation of love. This was the demonstration. The demonstration was God so loved the world, he gave. He gave his son. And the the explanation is his son died for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the cross is where we get our marching orders. So if, if you want to see love, Look to the cross. If you want to show love, look to the cross. If you want to know love, look to the cross. This is the gospel. Jesus laid down his life. And the greatest display of righteousness or holiness that could come for you and I is for us to do the same thing for others, to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you love people like that? Do you understand that your service to God, your service for others to God may mean dying? This is the the type of love that God has called us to. This is a a serious type of love. Amen? And we need to have this in our hearts so that if the moment arises for us to do just that and lay down our lives, we would be willing and empowered by the Spirit to do just that and lay down our lives. Now, I want you to think about the people that you would lay down your life for. I mean, the first people that come to my mind is my family. I'd do anything to keep my family from harm. I would die for those kids and for that woman over there. Amen? I would. I would lay down my life, man, to to save them from harm. I would die for them. We could write a good song right now about that. Doesn't that sound so noble, so wonderful? This is the type of love God's called us to. But listen, He hasn't called it to just our family it's easy to think of it in terms of family 
It's about our church family, our brothers. And I want you to look around. We're to feel the same way about one another, that we would be willing to lay down our lives for all of us. Oh, that God would grow that kind of love at the vine. I think it's here. I think there's remnants of it. I think we got room to grow. Amen? But oh, that we would love each other and we would look at each other and say, man, I would die for you. I would lay down my life for you. That's the type of love God's called us to. It sounds noble and spiritual. It sounds awesome, doesn't it? But we learn something of the idea of Christian love that's different from just dying. There's actually very tangible ways that we can love one another. Look at verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is love in the context of everyday living. It's not likely, it is very unlikely actually, that you and I will be called upon to die for one another. It's very unlikely that we're going to have to take, our lives are going to be taken to spare somebody else's life near. But you have the opportunity to help your brothers and sisters in Christ in a much more tangible way right now. Right now. Verse, verse 17 introduces this negative example of a greater to lesser argument based on verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus had a life to give. You have stuff. You have worldly goods to give. Jesus saw your need and he gave his life. You, however, see your brother's need, and it says you close your heart and look the other way. How then can God's love abide in you is what John asked. And the obvious answer is it doesn't. If you know that there's a brother in need and you don't do anything, that's evidence that you don't love your brother which is evidence that you don't know God and haven't seen Him, which is evidence that you are a child of the devil. You see all these things fit together. So we're, now does that mean that if we're apathetic now and then, I don't encourage that, obviously, but there, there's times to repent. I know all of us have probably, maybe not, man. Look, if you know of a need, meet the need, amen? If you've got the worldly goods to meet a need, meet the need. How can we say God's love abides in us if, if we don't, if we close our heart to our brother? See, John knows that our hearts are connected to our hands, right? They control our hands. A closed heart will always result in closed hands and is evidence that your heart has never been opened by the gospel. We need to have an open hand policy. Julie and I sometimes as we're talking about doing things or giving or whatever, we'll We'll just look at each other and hold our hands open. That means it's time to give. It's so easy for us to, to, to hold on, isn't it? To, to cling to the things we have. These worldly things that won't last. Do you know, you know that, that if you hold on to things that you're to give, they're gone? But if you give them, the Scripture teaches that God will give ten times, a hundred times back to you. Not, maybe not those material things. But you'll receive a reward. Praise God. Let's, let's be a church with open hands, an open hand policy. James said it this way. 
James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Faith without works is dead. Dead faith. Dead love. Neither one does anyone any good. And so John ends his argument with a simple maxim that that follows a, a negative to positive line of reasoning. Verse 18, little children, let us love in word. Let us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Let's, let's love in word and in, 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 in not just in word, but in deed and in truth. Love is so much more than a good profession, isn't it? Than a, than a good speech. Love is an action word that always expresses itself in good deeds done in truth. And truth is important here. Our motives are super important because they may depict a different story than our actions do. So not only are we to give in deed, but it should be done in truth, knowing that we love one another. Both are important. We should choose to do something and do it in truth and sincerity, desiring to help our brother in need so how do we know how to do this what does it look like do you want to see love indeed in truth look no further than the cross god said the savior was coming jesus fulfilled that he came out of love he gave his life indeed he did it and in truth, his life is what our life is all about. So this morning, I want to encourage you to be like Jesus. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's pursue holiness. Let's strive to follow in the way of God's truth and righteousness. He's calling us to, to the permanent pursuit of holiness in and, and the Christian life in this passage. And if we're truly living in this righteousness, we will certainly express that in our love for one another. May it be said of us that we loved deeply and greatly, and not just in our word, but in deed and in truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your example of love. Thank you for the example of love in our lives that you gave your one and only Son for us. And my prayer is that we would be very open-handed here at the Vine, God, and we would give to one another, and we would love one another with sincerity and truth. God, I thank you for the men and women in this building and the children God and I pray that all of us would would pursue holiness God we would pursue holiness together we would help one another we would love one another and God that you'd be honored at the vine I pray God even now that Lord you would help us to not be deceived uh, by the evil one God and not even be deceived by ourselves but help us to cling to you and to know that you have paid the price for our sins and God you have conquered sin you came to do away with the devil's deeds. And it's my prayer that we would do away with them. And God, we would walk in holiness and righteousness. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.